This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you're listening to episode 108. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Now, before we get to today's interview, just a quick reminder about our annual investor conference coming up in a little less than two months, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21st through 23rd, 2020 in Las Vegas at Bally's Hotel and Casino. Registration is now open. So to go and do that, go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com and click register now. I can tell you right now, we got an awesome lineup of speakers and we're really putting together an amazing lineup of companies. And uh, I'm just excited to see uh, as many of you there as, as, uh, as possible. So really to business now, uh, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Matt Joss. He is the Chief Investment Officer of Maven Funds Management. So thanks to a tweet from Ian Castle um, on Microcap Fund Manager Strategies. Thank you, Ian. I happened to see Matt's handle and really down the rabbit hole I went. I read his recent blog post, learned more about his investing strategy and philosophy, and really before we knew it, we had an interview scheduled to chat further. We cover, we cover a number of topics, including how to catch monsters, which uh, some of you will catch the double meeting there, uh, hidden power of inflection points, how Kiwis are winning the space race, and more. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 108 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Matt Joss. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. The 2020 Investor Conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me, maybe a few of the guests you've heard on this podcast, to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21st through 23rd, 2020, at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you will get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known emerging growth private and publicly traded microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21 through 23, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. And with me today, my guest is Matt Joss. He is the founder and the CIO of Maven Funds based in Sydney, Australia. Matt, good day. 
I'm sure you guys. Hey. I'm sure you guys so annoyed from every American always saying that. But you know, I'm going to be one of those. Good day. That's all good. Thanks, mate. Yeah, good day. Thanks very much for having me on. Very excited to be here. Uh, it's great to have you on, man. And thank you for joining me. I know our. It was, I, I was. I was so stoked that you helped me with organizing the actual time because I, even though I follow professional surfing, so sometimes I, you know, when the events are on, I sometimes know, but I. I do appreciate your help on that. Math is not my my number one. Yeah, hundred percent. The uh, international time zones can be a bit tricky when there's different days involved as well. Cause <laughs> we live in the future, as you know. But yeah, no, all good. Uh, no, and, and thanks for joining me. And, and I have to ask, I'm sure our audience wasn't. How's Australia going around? Going right now with the fires? Is I, you? I think you told me offline is that rain cures all at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah, pretty much. It's such a vast area that they were just trying to just protect houses and that type of stuff. They weren't able to really make a dent. But then we had a big dump of rainfall last week and it's still maybe some more coming. So, yeah, hopefully that's bringing it all under control. Um, it's been pretty rough. It's been even like Sydney, Melbourne, just smoke, thick smoke, like worse than Beijing in winter kind of thing. And uh, yeah, so and a lot of other people losing their houses. So it's been tough. Damn, man. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, everyone here, myself included, just were been thinking about you guys a lot you know we we talked to a number of Aussies you know working mm. here at SNN so we've just been I'm just I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're safe and it's it, hopefully it sounds like there's a light at the end of the tunnel yeah absolutely and I appreciate that yeah so so with that you know I want to again this is your first time on the podcast and, and as I do with every guest you know I'd love to get your background and really how you got to where you're at today so mm-hmm. from there take it away Matt let, let's hear your whole story yeah, I guess uh, kind of a quick, quick version. I grew up in New Zealand, um, got into investing at quite a young age. So when I was maybe in my mid-teens, was following it, but um, and then bought my first shares when I was like 18, but didn't have any philosophy. I hadn't discovered like value investing. I was just interested in business and um, kind of reading the newspaper and seeing what stocks would, you know, what's going on and thinking I knew everything. Um, and then kind of uh, had some good luck at the start, which was probably unlucky because it all came, came bad after that. So I had a couple of companies, um, one including like a mining exploration company that went well. And so I'm thinking, yeah, I can do this. Uh, and then realized, no, I can't. <laughs> uh, so by kind of mid-20s, I was kind of like, oh, what is this? You know, what am, I, what am I doing with this? And then I discovered like value investing and Warren Buffett, which I didn't know how I'd missed before. Um, and that was kind of when I got bit by like um, the investing bug again. Well, and not to age you or anything, but you know what? Mm. Like, what what time frame was this? You know, was it around the two thousands or? Yeah, so um, be two thousand three would be when I first bought my shares, and when I was about eighteen. So yeah, it was coming into like a bull market as well, I guess. And so you know, different things, um, and uh, you know, reading online forums and that kind of stuff. You think um, you think it's all easy and blind leading the blind sometimes if they're not a good forum. Um, so yeah, that was around the time. And then I guess the GFC was just when I was finishing. I did an honors degree in international business at uni, and just kind of finishing that, coming out of that. Um, was kind of an interesting time to be going out into the world. And that was kind of around that time I started really getting back into it and discovered value investing. Um, ended up joining a shipping company and going to Copenhagen, Denmark for a few years as an expat. And just before I moved, um, investing started kind of taking over my life. Um, and when I moved there, it like completely took over my life. I started like an investment club and a company with a friend and nights and weekends were all investing. Um, and so there, after a couple of years, I kind of thought I should probably do this for my full-time gig and not just nights and weekends um, and then had an opportunity I started writing for Motley Fool Australia and uh, they had a research analyst role open uh, so I moved down um, here to uh, 
start writing, uh, start working for them as a research analyst, uh, research analyst for a couple of years, then portfolio manager for a couple of years on the service we had here, um, and then left there just a bit over a year ago and kind of setting up my own uh, my own shop now, Maven Funds Management. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a journey. <laughs> no, just, I mean that that's so cool. I mean you're you know that's that's something I envy about most Australians I talk to is they're very much global citizens. You know, you guys really. Mm-hmm live all, all over the world. I, I mean, especially junior mining. I mean, they're, you know, a lot of these guys are going to Argentina for, <laughs> for their mines and stuff. Even yeah. just go, even just go to the West coast of Australia. I mean, that's a journey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a long trip. Um, yeah, I think it makes, and, and probably New Zealand even more so, like it's just such a small country. Most of the news you're reading is international. And um, yeah, I was always, I wanted to like live and work overseas. New Zealand, and, yeah. New Zealander. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Okay. I, gr- I grouped you. I, I apologize now. I, 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 That's right. I, but a horrible mistake. I will never do that again. Yeah, no, no, you, you can even do it. Right. That's all good. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, I'd like to, like to um, yeah, understand the world a bit. And yeah, it's, it all helps, I think. So, so when you were getting your start, I mean, were you focused specifically on New Zealand public companies or Australian public? I mean, just what was kind of around you and easy or were you kind of looking globally already? I guess um, a bit of both. So when I first started, it was like New Zealand and Australia and then kind of um, kind of started looking more globally when I was based in Copenhagen. Coming back to Australia, we were just Australia and New Zealand focused for the service I ran. And I kind of I moved back into that niche, I guess, because uh, the small cap world in Australia is so inefficient. Um, and you can meet with the CEOs very easily of all these companies and their competitors and suppliers. And it's just a level of um, what do they call it, like boot leather research um, that you can't do as easily with big companies. So still I follow like the big US companies, particularly because I'm, I'm trying to look for like parallels in New Zealand and Australia or companies that can grow and, and do similar things. Um, but yeah, so I just focus on Australia and New Zealand now um, with what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, what's interesting to me is, and I've realized this or I've seen this in the last couple of years when doing a lot of due diligence on, you know, the Australian markets and kind of the, the ethos of the, of especially micro cap investing down there is that it's really, it's part of the core of New, Ze- New Zealanders and Australians. You know, it's like, there's, it's like a, you know, gambling is so, I, I'm so, I don't mean you to know, equate it to gambling, it. but you like, that's, that's, that's what it is. So Australians are the biggest um, gamblers per capita in the world. I think per, like per person, there's like $800 of losses a year. And that's like every man, woman, and child. And that's losses, not gambles. Um, so they're a big, like it's a big part of the culture for sure. And it definitely spills over to that small and micro cap end. Um, and I'm obviously not a gambler. So I think it's like, it's, it's, it's kind of perfect for me. Like it makes the market kind of quite choppy and, um, you know, things can go up huge for no good reason. Other things can crash as a result. And it just leads to more inefficiencies. Um, no, it doesn't always mean cheap. That means like both ways, of course, but it just means there's more like value add, I guess, if you're doing doing analysis. Yeah. You, know, you know, I did an interview on the Australian markets with a gentleman named Mark Tobin. Um, mm. I think it was about a year ago, maybe maybe a little longer. <laughs> and we were talking about, sorry, not to dive deep. We're going to get to your investing philosophy in a second. But it, for me, what was interesting is because with a lot of these Australian companies, you look at these share counts and mm. it's like, Billions of shares outstanding, and you know, you see the you know, share prices. And like, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I mean, as a fund manager, I mean, how do you how do you go about navigating these these you know, these companies, especially when you're looking for parallels in the US? Like, 
usually you see and, and the and some most of these some of these companies are good quality businesses in Australia. It's just kind of the the nature of the beast. But when you're talking about looking for parallels in the US, like you look for some of those in the microcaps, you're like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess my parallels are probably more the big successful companies. I'm trying to find companies that can do that. But you're right. That, that's one key, two key differences probably. So it's very easy to issue more shares in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and so it's very common. So, um, you know, companies were just, there's these zombie companies, I call them, where they're just like constantly going along. And you just watch their share count just increase massively. Um, and I think in the U.S. it's a bit harder. You have to have an investment bank involved, et cetera, et cetera, whereas it can, you can just, you know, just at the whim of the company, they can raise more shares um, in Australia. And so also there's a lot of what they call backdoor listings. So like a, a shell company will get taken over, and that's super common in Australia. So you have these. I just recently went through all of the kind of A to Z. And there's about 2,500 companies, and there's some weird stuff, man. There'll be like a software company which also has a mine in Tanzania and also has some biotech assets. So it's like this, you know, like these zombies that have morphed into one and the other and all that like the old assets are still there. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, we're really, you know, we're an enterprise software company with, you know, mining exploration rights that we're trying to do something with. Um, so yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty bizarre. But um, I think that means that you focus a lot more on um, how they manage cash and capital allocation and just avoiding the, dil the dilutionary companies will get you probably pretty far. Mm. Gotcha. Well, so let's let's dig in a little bit. You know, as you <laughs> said previously, you started Maven Funds. It, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you said about a year ago. You know, yeah, I started building towards. So we're launching actually in the next couple of months. So we just announced that it's happening, and yeah, just um, just in the build stage now. So hopefully, Sweet. get it all good. Yeah. Cool. So so then you know. In, in the building stage now and eventually launch, you know, what, what's the firm's investing philosophy then, you know, for when you, mm -hmm. when, when it does launch? Yeah, I, I described it with a, a few kind of pillars. Um, the first thing, finding monsters. So basically what we're trying to find is these companies that can be very large, big companies and trying to find them while they're still small. So um, <laughs> you're smiling there. Um, but that name's based on Monster Beverage in the US, which is kind of one of my favorite stories from that book, 100 Baggers. Um, Sorry, I think there's someone testing a fire alarm in the building. That's okay. Um, so yeah, trying to find these small companies that have the ability to grow to be very large companies. And uh, I like that um, example of Monster Beverage because they don't have to be, um, I'm not looking for lucky companies, I guess. I'm not looking for some unexpected breakthrough, um, something that can be seen along the way. So Monster's a pretty simple business. There were many times where it was available at a reasonable valuation. And that's what I'm trying to tie those together. So that's like the core of what we do. And then I guess the rest kind of flows through from that. Um, so yeah, trying to trying to apply another way of thinking is trying to like invest in high growth early stage businesses, but with like a valuation um, backstop. So trying to like merge those two. I come from a value background. I joined Motley Fool interested in like David Gardner, um, who's had these amazing huge, I think there's like a thousand bagger in Amazon or something, um, which is just insane. A thousand dollars becomes like a million dollars. And so I'm trying to like marry those two. I don't go as far as him and um, he ignores valuation entirely. So I'm trying to like bring it back to merge the two together. Gotcha. Um, yeah. It's, mm. All right. So what were the other three pillars? Because I know it's finding monsters and then I, I believe it's, you said deep research, ownership mindset mm -hmm. and, and you. So you want to dig into those a little bit too? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I guess the core part of what we do, we're trying to you know, um, meet with management, meet with competitive suppliers. We want to really understand those businesses. So we only typically want to hold maybe 15 to 30 companies. So much more concentrated than a typical fund manager. It's very common in Australia for people to hold like 100 companies. We want to only hold a few and just really concentrate them to those. 
Uh, and that means doing a lot of work on those companies. So try to you know, meet with management at a minimum, but meet with the competitors, suppliers, customers, um, really build out, does this company have a competitive advantage? Does it have uh, different kind of adjacencies it can expand into? Uh, I think a lot of the huge upside that can come in investing comes from a company having a really strong competitive advantage, but then the ability to reinvest into other areas. Um, and we want to understand the business model fundamentally. So that's probably most of my work is just understanding like exactly what the business does, uh, how that flows through, and kind of then how scalable that is. So um, A2 Milk, which I, I hold shares in today and had for, held for a long time, um, is up something like 1,600% or something, so 17 bagger or so. And that is a simple company, uh, similar to Monster Beverage. It uh, makes... Um, infant formula uh, as its main product. Um, but that is a business that's super scalable, but doesn't necessarily look like it. If you think about a food company, not normally very scalable, but it's much more like Coca-Cola. It has like a brand that it then can get someone else to produce the formula. So it's super scalable business. So yeah, just trying to understand those. That's a big part of what we call deep research and then monitoring that all the time and knowing when to sell. Um, so the other two were ownership mindset. And that's kind of reflecting me as a manager, I have a majority of my liquid, you know, personal wealth invested into the fund. Um, anyone else on the team will be doing the same and the investing team. And it's also for the clients um, because we want people to understand their own businesses. It's really, it's a really weird abstraction of the share market, I think, where people are like, oh, is it going to go down and, you know, what's going to happen? And it's just like, just come back to the businesses you own. Um, I like that analogy people say of, if, um, if someone sold their one business and they lived in a small town and they bought shares in five to ten other businesses, you'd think they're pretty diversified. But we don't seem to think that about the stock market for some reason. And I think just focusing on those businesses and how they're performing um, is like the best way to manage the kind of emotions of the market. Uh, and I guess the third um, is uh, thinking about our uh, companies that we invest in, we want them to have an ownership mindset so not um, kind of solving the principal agent problem. Typically, we invest in um, companies that are founder-led or where the um, CEO at least acts like a founder even if he joined later and ideally holds a good share of the company. Um, you just get better decisions when there's all that alignment between all the, the levels. Um, and I think that that ownership mindset, yeah, I think it means for, makes for better clients as well that can stick with it. And so that was a fourth pillar when we talk about you, which means our clients, is finding clients that um, are aligned with us on that journey. I think I kind of look, a lot of, although I invest in growth companies, I'm quite um, risk averse. So I try to like eliminate all the risk of trying to get a good handle on them before I invest. And it's kind of the same with starting this business. A lot of funds that don't work is when they have clients that aren't aligned with what they're trying to do. So we're not interested in um, just because, you know, I previously had some good returns in other portfolio managers, I'm not interested in people just chasing kind of hot, hot money returns, um, really understanding what you own and being able to stick with it. Um, and we'll try and um, foster that as well by giving more like in-depth understanding of, of what, we, what we're buying and why. And I think the clients can do that um, by, by understanding that and being invested kind of mentally in those businesses. And then kind of hopefully sharing some knowledge between them. So a lot of our investors will be, you know, business owners or senior executives. Um, they're people that understand industry or even they just might have like a super passionate hobby that can have different you know, things related. I really want to, to the extent possible, get that kind of network and sharing of, of knowledge going because uh, Peter Lynch is another kind of an inspiration of mine. And I think that that uh, knowing what you own and what's going on in the world, just keeping an eye open can be super valuable. Gotcha. So I, I, I wanted to come back to, to something that you said earlier that, you know, I, I 
wanted to explore further. And it's the mm-hmm. idea of, of, you know, you'd like to focus on the Australian, New Zealand public markets because you like to, especially in micro cap, small cap, there's, you want to take advantage of the inefficiencies in that, in that market. You know, how would you say maybe the inefficiencies in the Australian, New Zealand markets are different than let's say on the same inefficiencies in small micro cap in, in the U S and Canada? Yeah, I think it's just that it comes back to that kind of that gambling mindset a bit where you see these huge runs up and then they tend to crash back down. Um, so I think when they crash back down, it can be a good opportunity. Um, yeah, I just think it's, there's a small kind of structural differences. There's also a much longer tail, I think, relatively in Australia. So there's 2,300, 400 listed entities, but everyone only talks about the top 200, um, ASX 200 normally, or maybe 500. So there's like you know 1,500 companies that are just completely ignored. They're not so even in you know the main industry, um, and it's and yeah. So you have a few like large, and then this huge tail of, of small cap companies. And so um, yeah, there just isn't really much institutional coverage of, of any of them. I think so. That's probably one difference. Maybe like relatively, there's like a much longer tail. And then I look at New Zealand. Um, if you're an interactive brokers client, you can't even invest in New Zealand, which I love because it like, keeps it out. Um, it's a much smaller market, only about 200 companies, but yeah, it's really even um, even less kind of t- picked over there. So yeah, I think that'd be the difference. Also, uh, my personal view is that the research that does come out from at that lower tier is probably lower quality than the US. I'm not sure maybe it's a more competitive market, but um, I read some of the kind of third or fourth tier brokerage reports and they're very shallow, <laughs> which just means that there's even the people that are looking at them aren't, um, I don't think, looking at it appropriately. And then I think um, there has been a persistent inefficiency around software and technology. I think that's starting to change a bit, but um, basically the dot-com bubble was a big thing here, probably like even bigger relatively than in the US. A lot of people got burned. A lot of people just learned not to invest in technology and thankfully kind of ignored that space for you know almost two decades. Um, and I think some of it's starting to come back, but it's not, people still are a bit kind of service level. They might look at, you know, what, what does a company report its LTV and CAC to be, but they don't really dig that much deeper. So, yeah, just trying to, just trying to find a way to marry those two of doing the work and then doing evaluation and digging deep on that side. No, for sure. I mean, two follow-ups to that is, you know, um, just from, you know, researching the space and, and seeing, you know, I, it's it's interesting because when we hear there's 2,300 companies, we're like, as as you know, in North America, we're like, oh, nothing. Like, oh, we can, mm-hmm. you know, roll through those like nothing. And especially keeping the mindset of how much of an active micro cap market, small micro cap market there is, you know, in, mm-hmm. in Australia and New Zealand, you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, you know, obviously the the cream will always rise to the the top, but once people, you know, there must be a collective of people that are constantly probably talking about the companies other than those top two, 300 companies Mm. that might potentially drive up the valuations of some of these companies because, oh, here's some other good quality business. So now you see the multiples of these companies kind of skyrocketing. I mean, as I'm sure, I'm sure that it's all cyclical. So I'm sure you see that every Mm. so often, but I mean, have you, have you experienced that and seen that? Yeah, definitely. I think I'd say the thing is that when they get pushed up a lot of the time, it's not, um, they get pushed way beyond the fundamentals. So that definitely happens, but it tends to be kind of um, more of a trader mentality or very like um, very hyper momentum mentality. So you see these, you know, something will come out and get some good news and then other people jump in and it just, just flies. Like they'll go up, you know, 800% or whatever in a, in a year or something, but then they come crashing back down most of the time. 
Um, and I, I always tell companies when I'm talking with them, just focus on the fundamentals until you're, you know, well, forever, basically, but focus on the fundamentals and then tell that story rather than trying to do it the other way around. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it work in Australia where a company comes out, like hyper promotes and then is able to to do it. Like it just, it, I, I don't know, maybe one in a thousand times they actually do that, but every other time they get pumped up, then they get into that loop where they're like keep being rewarded for that promotional kind of um, stuff and then it'll come crashing back. So we had some recent big um, blow-ups, um, a couple of companies that would announce a partnership with Amazon and you're wondering like, are they just using AWS? Like there's no partnership with Amazon here, what are you talking about? But they got up to pretty big valuations. Um, and then it all kind of came crashing down and, you know, you go from getting close to, because you can get up to kind of half a million, half a billion, a billion dollar valuation for some of these microcaps very quickly. And then they kind of hit reality. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's, there's good analysts, but there's just a lot more gambling that fuels it as well. So you do get the cream rising to the top, but it needs, they need to be kind of disciplined about it as you get these whoopsawing effect. And what's, you know, what's so interesting about it too, is that, you know, the ASX as a, as a, a a regulatory body is they're pretty stringent it's not it's not like they're you know free willing you know go do your thing and, and not and not really having any kind of checks and balances i mean they're they're very strict about you know news releases and 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 just really the the type the types of in, information that public companies are putting out there you know so it's pretty interesting that that happens yeah, I think it, there's been a lack of enforcement um, for quite a long time. And so in the smaller end, a lot of stuff, um, you know, they might get a letter like, um, you know, we call it a speeding ticket when the share price has gone up a lot for no reason and then they roll out some good news. Uh, but there wasn't a, for a long time enough follow-up to that from, from the regulators. I think there's some new people coming into uh, our regulator here, um, ASIC, who are kind of enforcing that now. And I hope that that um, continues because it, it just – it's. It's kind of good for me, obviously, have been inefficient, but it does burn a lot of mum and dad investors as well. Like there's a lot of stories of someone putting all their money into a couple of companies and, you know, getting hyped up by those other people promoting it to them and then just losing everything. So it's, a, you know, it's definitely a positive for it to get it improved over time. Um, and I think they're taking the right steps. But it's, yeah, I guess it's just, um, yeah, just a lack of kind of enforcement. There have been some decent rules, but probably not enough on the, the follow-up. And, and also to quickly follow up, you know, I it wasn't that long ago that I would always think of Australian, New Zealand as, you know, junior mining, mining, mm. you know, lithium mm-hmm. and all, all the, you know, all these different commodities. And it's only been in the last couple of years that, you know, I've come across quite a few really interesting, you know, tech plays and, and mm. you know, the technology that's being developed in, in Australia and New Zealand is really quite interesting. I mean, you were saying that further. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, I don't do mining exploration at all. I have my fingers burned enough and realize it's not for me. Um, so when I'm going through those, it's like 30, 40% of the market I can just cross off. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's a this, this growing kind of generation of software companies. I think that there had been a lot of like well-educated people and often traditionally, particularly in New Zealand, they would build a business, um, get it to a few million dollars or tens of millions of dollars and then sell it to a large international player. And more and more now they're looking at building it themselves or um, taking it back. So in New Zealand, we had a company called Zero, which is accounting software, um, incredible business. And uh, that 
the founder of that business had previously built a couple of businesses and sold them off and you know made millions, but not not um, billions. And then decided this time I'm going to follow this all the way through. And that company is now worth you know many many billions of dollars and is a leader outside of the US. Intuit did a very good defence in the US, so it's much smaller player there, but leader in Australia, New Zealand, UK, and um, a lot of other countries globally. So. Um, yeah, I think that there's kind of been a recognition now where they can you can grow these big businesses in Australia, and I think that's starting to flow through. So, and the ASX is very actively courting this. Perhaps um, some would say to their detriment, where they're willing to accept lower quality companies. But that's again part of the beautiful kind of inefficiency. It's you get some companies listing that are pre-revenue, um, and I probably wouldn't um, say that's like the appropriate place normally for that to be on a public market. Uh, whereas in the US, I think you have to have a pretty decent amount of revenue before you list publicly. Um, but yeah, so you get, you get, depends, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> depends on your method of listing. Um, yeah. So I think that there's, I think it's, it's a bit, um, it's, they've been encouraging like a lot of uh, growth from, you know, Israeli tech companies will come and list here and they're trying to kind of spark like a, a NASDAQ of the, of the South Pacific, I guess you call it, they're calling it. So, um, it's all good for me. Like there are some really good businesses. The other thing is because it's such a small local market, almost all of the software companies I invest in are global by from day one um, because the market here is so small. So there'd be a few that might have a niche that only is defendable here, but typically these companies are global from the start and that means um, you know much more diversified uh, revenue. It means I'm not as exposed to the Australian economy and everything else. So I think at one stage, something like 70, 80% of my portfolio companies' revenue came from um, overseas, not Australia. Um, so yeah, that's I guess the other thing, just being a small kind of outward looking uh, country can can lead to that. Gotcha. All right. So I, I, I wanted to kind of dive into some of your blog posts that, that you posted mm-hmm. on, on both on your website, well, mm-hmm. on the Maven Funds website, and then also your, your, yeah. your personal website, you know, and yeah. one of the posts that I really enjoyed when I, when I read was uh, that, and I quote, the hidden power of inflection points, end quote, mm-hmm. you know, so in there you go through various types of uh, inflection points that you look for um, mm-hmm. in your investing process. So, you know, I just I kind of want to just ask you flat out, you know, what, what are the few types that you look for and, and mm-hmm. why? Yeah, I feel, um, I feel like I wish I could take that boat back sometimes because I like expose like so much of what I do. Um, but yeah, so inflection points, basically what I'm trying to find, I want to invest in fast growing businesses and I want to, um, I think that there's an opportunity for like very rapid share price appreciation. But again, I'm not just buying for hype. So I'm really looking at fundamentals. So I'm looking for a business where, the fundamentals are about to get a lot better than they used to be, is the simplest way of putting it, which tends to be this inflection point where um, something's changing and the future's about to get a whole lot better. So the example I wrote about in depth was a turnaround, because I think that's like a classic example that gets a lot of value investors caught out. Um, So a company that's improving its prospects, a lot of people go way too early, I think. And I think there's a much better sweet spot of waiting for proof that the turnaround's already happened and then buying. Um, some of the other ones is like a new product or segment that's growing much faster than the old one, so it's kind of hidden. Um, it could be just a hyper-growth company where they're just tipping past um, what's called crossing the chasm, so getting into that early majority. Suddenly you can see this big ramp up. Um, or a company that's just coming into profitability with a lot of operating leverage. That The fundamentals, um, I guess if you really were analyzing it properly, it's not that huge a difference, but the way it's perceived by the market's radically different when you suddenly have you know profits exploding off not that much revenue growth. Um, yeah, and there can be other things like a demand side thing where there's a new um, a new distribution agreement that can just see you know sales skyrocket. So I'm just looking for points where 
um, the fundamentals, I mean, the cash flows of the business are about to get like very different to they have been, because I think it's a point where the market makes mistakes. Um, and I guess my grand theory of investing, I have one approach, but the grand theory is, you know, everything is some misperception of the market or some fault of some kind. If you're a deep value guy, you're doing it because people tend to be too pessimistic towards the bottom. I'm saying that there's a whole lot of these other opportunities, um, I guess, on the growth side where people don't think um, think about things appropriately. Mm-hmm. And I talk about in there around um, how we aren't able to think exponentially because I think that's part of it. Um, we tend to just project linearly from whatever's been happening recently. And I think that that means that there's these opportunities where a growing business can be significantly undervalued, even even if it's multiple is 30 times or whatever, you know, like traditionally people say that's expensive, but I think it can be super cheap if you look at the cash flows and you're like thinking about that growth appropriately. Right. So yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to get into. So then in terms, and, and as a follow-up to that, you know, I, I'm curious about your perception then of timing. Cause when I think of inflection points, you know, and, and maybe some others perception who may not mm-hmm. be looking at, you know, at the market mm-hmm. on a daily basis or even microcaps looking for new ideas potentially on a daily basis. They might be thinking to themselves, oh, okay, inflection point investing. I got to go find, you know, I got to put in some something in my screens and, and, and I, geez, I just hope my timing is, is good. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. what, how do you, how do you, would you recommend investors understand inflection points in terms of your market timing? Yeah, and, I, and, and just to emphasize again, it's obviously not. Um, there are some other people who talk about inflection points in a share stock chart. I'm not talking about that. Um, no, I didn't mean either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that the market timing aspect is, is a big part of what I'm looking for. So I'm looking for real world traction um, to prove that whatever this inflection points already happened, I'm not trying to like predict that it's going to happen without any evidence for it. Um, and I think that's where a lot of these companies that are selling a, a great story can kind of catch people out. Um, so it can sometimes be in the fundamentals, so like as in the financials that are reported, because we report here on a quarterly basis for um, for cash flow losing companies on a, on a semi-annual basis, so only twice a year we normally report, which is another difference to the US. Um, but we report ca- quarterly for cash flow um, burning companies. You can sometimes see it in there, and sometimes the market hasn't been fast enough that that's still an opportunity. But often you kind of need to understand the business enough that you not that you're like ahead of that. I think if you're going to catch most of the upside, which means doing that that deep research that we're trying to do and just really um, like understand if they they might announce a new distribution agreement, for instance, but you need to have a good enough understanding of what that means, what that's likely to flow through to. Is there some way that from publicly available information you can track that and and measure it before they announce? Because by the time they announce. Um, it might be too late to catch most of the gains. So um, I try to find for every company some like alternative data or some alternative metric that is publicly available and that we can like weave together to, to have our own set of numbers for the business. Um, so yeah, for A2 Milk, I mentioned that before, you know, that was tracking um, how much of the product was out of stock on shelves because that was quite a big thing, kind of looking at the expiry dates to figure out how fast they were turning over um, the product because that had huge explosive growth and was just always out of stock. Um, for other companies, there was a company called Pushpay, which I also still own, um, which provides software for U- for churches in the US. And it was like looking at how many churches were using that. Again, we could find that out from the Apple App Store and, um, and, and publicly available info. So yeah, it's trying to find some metric that gives you that visibility, how the fundamentals are going before the market um, is like informed with a lagging indicator of a quarterly, ideally. 
Gotcha. Well, you, you actually gave a couple of good, interesting examples there um, of different types of inflection points that you, you sometimes look for. I mean, overall, what would you say has been, are the different inflection points that when you're going out looking for a potential new investment have provided mm -hmm. some successful wins? I'm not, if you yeah. want to name names, that's fine, but I'm more looking yeah. for the, the inflection point example mm -hmm. itself. Yeah, I think um, turning tipping into profitability is a big one. That is now a lot of more people are looking at. I think, but it's still still pretty significant and historically it's been big. So zero that accounting software provider. We held that for a while, but when you could see that it was about twelve months um, going from being it had been like the poster child of people um, denigrating software because it had been posting a lot of losses. But they're like a classic SaaS company. Those losses were heavy marketing spend for this incredibly sticky long-lived product. Um, and so, but if you could see it, the economics were getting so good, it was tipping into profit, um, you know, over the next, I think it's quadrupled since, um, since that point over a couple of years, uh, it, you know, for an already big company, just because now suddenly the market changes its view on it, right? It's not this loss-making company anymore. It's a brand new company that makes profits, even though it's very different, you know, tiny, you know. The, the segment, the sign from negative to positive is so small and irrelevant really to the cash flows. But um, so that's a big one. I think the hyper growth um, inflection point is a big one for me. So that's a company that is just tipping into that early majority of um, of the market. If you think about, you know, early adopters and early majority, a lot of companies don't make that transition when they actually have. I think that can be big because that means um, they're going to just kind of run the table or potentially run the table on a market and um, that can be that can be years and years of being undervalued so that's um, I think the tipping in a profit one is good but you can if you miss it then that's kind of it um, it doesn't have as much of a flow on whereas if you can get something that's going to grow for 10 years at above market rates that's a almost any time you buy that tends to be a pretty good investment so um, yeah I think those are pretty big uh, the new product or segment I guess all of those <laughs> I'm going to go through them all I don't focus on turnarounds too much um, I do kind of look at tech, what I call like a tech turnaround. Uh, was, it was a company that got overhyped in the past, like I talked about, crashed back and then had to rebuild. And often they'll have a new management team. Often that new management team doesn't put out any promotional stuff and they just focus on growing. So that can be a good kind of, if I do turnarounds, it tends to be those. It's not like, a, I don't know, um, some like capital intensive uh, kind of typical deep value kind of stuff. Right, right. Mm. Cool. So, so I wanted to, switch gears a little bit to another blog post that you did. And mm -hmm. uh, this one's really based, this question's based on that. So, so the Kiwis, you know, the New Zealanders, they're, they're winning the new space race. Is that, is that what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. So um, All right. I'm, a huge, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of um, new technologies and everything. Um, so I try to, that's also what kind of draws me to the style of investing. I have, I just love learning about the stuff, AI and, and space technology. And there's a company from New Zealand um, founded by a dude from the smallest town in New Zealand, in Bacargo, one of the smallest towns at the bottom of the South Island. So probably one of the furthest South places in the world that people live. And he just, I don't know where this guy like, came from. I had the pleasure to interview him and I talked about that on the blog. Um, and he founded a company called Rocket Lab. But he, like, growing up, he was making rocket fuel in his backyard shed. He had like a bicycle that was like rocket powered and he rode that round at like 200 miles an hour. Um, there's like video, it's just crazy. And he had this audacious idea 
to start a rocket company. Um, you know, this was 10, 12, 15 years ago. Um, and he's actually like managed to pull it off. So it doesn't get almost any media attention, uh, which is us keen to write about it, but they have much smaller rockets that are uh, made with they have a 3D printed engine, carbon fiber um, for the um, main body of the, the craft. And so they can just basically print these things very quickly. And um, yeah, it's just a, just a radical different um, approach to space. So um, they also are launching out of this remote area in New Zealand. They had special government approval. And one of the beauties in New Zealand, it can work very quickly and efficiently. So a special treaty was made with the US so that they could operate there. And they're a New Zealand and US companies, so US can claim it as well. Um, and they, um, they can launch super frequently. So in the, in the US, I think I put a stat up there, when SpaceX wanted to do one of their launches from the US, something like, something like 200 flights had to be diverted or changed. Um, in New Zealand, in this remote area, there's almost no international air traffic. So they can launch, they have the permission to launch something like every 72 hours. Wow. And that gives us huge change in access to space. Um, it's also for these small CubeSat satellites and um, very small satellites. So historically, satellites went very high up into this geosynchronous orbit. They were huge things, very expensive. Now you can put up this tiny cube, like a 10 by 10 cube that can have a lot of um, technology on it and much closer to Earth's orbit. Um, to the Earth, I should say. And so there's this new kind of constellation of these small, cheap satellites going up that I think is going to um, revolutionize a lot of stuff that we do in space. Um, so SpaceX are doing some of that stuff well. And the title, Are They Winning the Space Race, was slightly cheeky on my part. I think it's, I don't think it's like clear cut who is, but I think they're, they're winning their niche very well, which is this small um, kind of frequent launch thing in a way that SpaceX can't currently do. But they, SpaceX probably has better economics for a much larger craft, or, you know, they're putting up a constellation of 6,000 new satellites for. Um, you know, a whole uh, new internet potentially, which uh, another topic that I'm amazed doesn't get more attention. Like if we have a um, satellite-based internet that connects every part of the globe at high speeds, it's pretty pretty big change. Um, yeah, so I had the pleasure to interview him, and I just I just like learning about new areas of economics. Um, and yeah, trying to, that, that was kind of my post. A lot of people talk about the science side of it, but I'm interested in how does the economics work. Interesting. I mean, so it's basically, it's not really so much for, you know, human travel. It's more just to launch technology in space, come back down yeah. and just really tackling that niche. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, he has, um, he has a, has a line that we don't, we don't ship meat. <laughs> so we don't send people up. Um, he has no interest in doing that. And I think it's also just had a really good laser focus on the small segment. They don't, everyone asks them when they're going to build a bigger rocket. They say there's no need because their, their point is to get your payload to exactly where you want it, which means dedicated launch missions. So I think you can go on there like any of us and could book online um, space on a rocket. Um, it costs a few hundred thousand dollars and you could put up your own little CubeSat. Um, and yeah, I don't know, that's pretty pretty crazy, kind of democratizing access to space. And it's still very early to figure out all the stuff we can do with that. There's a lot of kind of imagery, monitoring, internet, um, people are talking about producing things in space because the zero gravity could make things, you could produce things you can't produce on Earth. So yeah, the whole world opening up. And obviously it's super early, it's not listed or public now, but I'm just trying to kind of keep ahead of the curve, I guess. Gotcha. Very, very interesting, very interesting. And, and for full disclosure, are you a shareholder in the private company? No, I wish. It's, um, all, it's right. all, yeah, it's all, it's all private. Right. A few VC companies, I'm not a shareholder in that one. Gotcha. So uh, this is one of my favorite questions to ask and it's coming your way. So what, what would you say is an investing experience that impacted you the most in your career? 
So it probably would be early on when I lost um, what to me was a lot of money at the time when I was probably like 19 or 20, uh, just on a just on a bad investment basically. So I'd had a lot of success before that, thought I knew everything, and then bought this mining exploration company and had a really bad outcome and just realized I didn't know what I was doing. So it really reset me. Um, I kind of came back with much more humility. Um, I had that kind of idea that I would, I wanted to like do my lessons early, but I didn't think it would come that early. Um, but yeah, so that was a, a big one for me. And just realized I had to have a really good handle on the business itself. I'd really been trading news and just like a lot of new kind of newer investors. Um, so yeah, kind of humbling experience. Luckily I got out of it that company ended up going bankrupt. So I got out of it before then. Um, but it was, yeah, kind of reset. And that's when I kind of, Took a couple of years trying to re-examine things, still kind of dabbling, but that's um, led me to find value investing and something I could connect instantly with a much more rational view of the markets. Um, yeah, so that was probably a big one. And then, uh, not to do two, but some of the other companies I'd had, like um, like AT Milk that I mentioned that went up a lot, just kind of helped me learn the other side of investing. So being willing to see drawdowns of 30%, 40% in a company you hold, when you do have those fundamentals aligned and that conviction in the company. Um, yeah, I can see that, like, the other side of the investment that helped me really, like, get focused on, on that approach. Um, there's a lot of stuff people talk now about power laws and in investing, and that's actually a, probably a better way of um, describing what I'm focusing on monsters, is there's very few companies that generate all of the stock market's returns. I think something like 4% of companies generate all of the returns over a long period and the rest of companies basically destroy value. So trying to find those companies and yeah, those two, those like twin experiences, I guess is what shaped me. Oh, what was that phrase of power laws? Yeah, power law. So power law distribution gets talked a lot about in venture capital, but it's basically this idea in venture capital, it's very common to think, you know, you plant a lot of seeds and maybe one company is responsible for almost all the returns in a, in a portfolio. Um, but I think that that actually applies to, everything in business and investing, and it's quite ignored. So uh, Jeff Bezos talks about, pretty sure it's Jeff Bezos, talks about business being like baseball, where, um, but except every now and then you can hit the, um, hit the ball and you get a thousand runs, you know, instead of a four with a home run. And I think that that is kind of how I think about investing. It's this perfect game, um, whereas, you know, zero cold strikes, as Buffett would say, and then the potential to hit, you know, a thousand, a thousand run homer. Um, so I guess that's where I'm trying to focus is strip out a lot of the stuff that has no chance of doing that and focus into a few good companies then too. You know what? I really wish baseball itself would incorporate a thousand run home run. You know, I think, <laughs> they, might, they might make everything a little more. And I'm a fan. Like a little target or something. Like yeah. On the other side of well, yeah. I, I mean, this well, not to divert too much. This season's going to be very interesting with all the cheating scandals. But we digress. You know, it's it's funny based on your investing experience. It's almost like that first experience was like a self fulfilling prophecy. It's like you know, I really should lose. You know, yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> You're like, maybe it's yeah, maybe it should have supposed to happen, right? I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm young. It's the time. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a chance. Whatever. And then, and took the chance and, yeah. I, I think you might be the only one ever that's been like, you know, I really should, I really should lose right now. You know, I'm winning, <laughs> just winning too much. Uh, you know, this is just. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the follies of youth. <laughs> I, I really hope that's not your advice for new micro for new investors in the stock market because I'm about to ask that question. So let's uh -huh. do a full disclosure here. It is not to wish to lose at the beginning. We, <laughs> So, no, no, always but if you're win. Going to lose, do it at the beginning. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> do it when you're um, yeah, yeah. Don't do it later on. I think, um, yeah. Advice for advice for new investors would be figuring out 
I'd say sampling widely. So I really went through every style of investing, I think, um, and and tried them all on. And I think there's a lot that I can kind of do okay. So I, I've kind of done like more deep value stuff. I probably do okay-ish at it um, and kind of classic value, but really just finding something that suits your temperament and interest. What What's going to, if you are left alone, you don't have any other responsibilities, what will consume a whole weekend for you reading about and studying and understanding? And that's the style that you should probably follow because that will get you ahead of everyone else in the, in the industry. And there's people who love deep value and going through the balance sheet and incredible microscopic detail. And those people should be doing that. They shouldn't be doing what I do and trying to think about new technologies and S-curves of growth and all that type of stuff and vice versa. So I think finding something that suits you and your temperament, and it might be, indexing like there's plenty of people i don't think they should be investing actively in the market they could just be indexing so yeah finding what suits you there's like a thousand ways to make money there's a lot of approaches that are bad um so like don't do those they have to be like logically consistent with what you do but yeah finding something that suits you cool well matt with that you know where can my audience go and find more information about you and maven funds yeah, so uh, my blog, mattjoss.com, M-A-T-T-J-O-A-S-S.com, um, has all my blogs and writing about all that stuff I talked about. And then uh, mavenfunds.com.au is our, our website for the fund that we're launching very soon. So if folks can tune in there, we'll be posting more stuff up there as well. Matt, I'm, I'm sad to end the interview. I, I feel like we could keep going forever here, but uh, alas, I, I think we're at that point. So, you know, Matt, th thank you so much for joining me today. This was really a lot of fun and, uh, you know, good luck with the launch. And I, I look forward to talking soon when, uh, when you launch. Let's do it. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks very much. Robert. Real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Matt, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Market Cap podcast where I'll have our next guest to discuss all things investing. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast is brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsDown.com, the official market cap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap podcast. Have a great week, everyone.